another edition of the Road Dogs Podcast. I am your host, Nick Shaw, joined by my cousin and co-host, Josh Shaw. Josh, say hi. I've been thinking about something. Is this show our Cloud Atlas? You know, like Robert Forbisher is all like, this is the song that's going to define my legacy. And I'm kind of wondering, like, is this the thing that we're going to do that defines us? Is that sad? I kind of hope not. Um, this is really <laughs> yeah, fun me too. I love doing it. It's a great time every week. Great way to come back after two weeks, Josh. Thanks a lot. Real strong. Um, but yeah. no, I don't really think this is our, our sextet. But uh, it's, 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 a, it's a document. You know, it's, it'll be a history of films. Reviewed by two cousins on the internet. I mean, yeah, like we could point to this when we're as old as Georgette and uh, Timothy Cavendish and be like, you know, we were here, we were doing stuff at this point. We weren't just, you know, I don't know, throwing people off, like throwing publishers off buildings. That was crazy. <laughs> Part was pretty dope. Uh, folks, we are back after a two week hiatus. How you doing? Hope you had a good holiday season as we record the day after Thanksgiving. Um, we are returning with 2012's Cloud Atlas, directed by the Wachowskis. Um, pretty epic movie, 172 minute chunker. I really enjoyed. I think our feelings are a little bit divided, probably, but uh, I'm excited to talk about it. See where we go. I was surprised when you picked this because I, I know you enjoy the Wachowskis for the Matrix a lot, and like you're a big Matrix head, and we'll talk about that soon. Um, but I had never really seen the Wachowskis, and I remember Cloud Atlas because like Cloud Atlas was, was it was marketed pretty heavily. I remember. It was around, man, and then I kind of will just hop right into it. Like my my memory of it is still pretty strong, you know. Like uh, out out of high school, you know. So I enrolled into a community college called NHTI right down the road. Both Josh and I are our four elevator right there, oh, baby. Let's go, <laughs> let's links. go, baby. Wildcat, let's go. The links, baby. Dude, I was running through it out of all the colleges that I've been to. I've been a lynx. I've been an owl. Now I'm a red fox. Like, I'm just, I've been wow. a bunch of animals. And I think that's kind of my cloud atlas is coming back as those animals, maybe. I mean, I'm just always a cat. I'm, I'm a lynx. I'm, I'm a wild cat. And baby, that's what I need. I'm on that feline train. I love it. I love it. Um, so, you know, I roll in NHTI and uh, being the social butterfly that I am, in between classes, I spent a lot of time at Borders bookstores right down the road in Concord. Shout out. One of my favorite stores ever, you know, it's closed now, but I could close my eyes and walk you through the layout of that store. Just like the countless hours I spent there, even as a young kid, all the way into like adulthood. Um, so I was probably sitting there just drinking a black coffee, reading a Rolling Stones magazine, flipping through it, uh, thinking I was uber cool just because I'm like, yeah, I'm yeah. reading about reading these, you know, eight and a half pages about politics, you know, things that I don't even understand. I'm so educated. With the black coffee. Yeah. You're- yeah. Well, that's still it's still my 20... jam. I am a black coffee guy. Yeah, you're 19 years old, sitting in a boiler from reading the newspaper and sipping coffee like you're edu- like you're really just like on your like your level of like I'm a smart intellectual. Bring up a topic. Bring up a topic right now. Let's talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> very defensive. Very defensive. 18, 19 year old Nick Shaw. Uh, so I'm sitting there in Borders, and I see that on the bookshelf because I think we've all seen this one. Like a new movie releases, it gets that like glossy paperback with the movie poster on the cover usually you know it's it's pretty pretty prevalent so i'm like oh tom hanks hollyberry and like i had think i'd heard about the book but didn't really know anything about it and i read the first 15 20 pages while i was sitting there in between classes and like i i was engrossed by the book i was like i think the book opens with the adam ewing part which is kind of eh, not my favorite storyline but like the writing was really good it kind of drew me in and like i knew we were going somewhere super vast and you know really kind of unexplainable until you watch the movie and i still think it's pretty unexplainable in some regards yeah. um 
So I, I was kind of engrossed by it, so much so that I think I was probably late for class, but I put it back on the shelf, either because I was intimidated or because I was broke, which not too much has changed. So I never really finished it, but then this movie didn't really play anywhere close by, I don't remember. It probably did, and it was just one of those things I missed it. You know, We do kind of rag on New Hampshire. It's like, oh yeah, this isn't a place for cinephiles, but if you want to find some good movies, I'm sure you can find them. Like, you got to do the work, put yeah. in the drive or whatever, go to Keene, go to... You know, Lebanon, wherever, uh, Manchester. So I didn't catch it, and it kind of just came and went for various reasons, which I think we'll get into. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my relationship with it when I first really got introduced to it. And then I was like, you know what? Why not pick this this week? I've never seen it. Kind of popped up out of nowhere. I think I, I think I got a little seed planted in my head by hearing something, which we'll get into later. I want to save for later in the show. Um, and then that like little seed, like just matured over a couple weeks and i was like you know what? fuck it i'm gonna pick cloud atlas i remember the cloud atlas like poster to your point because i i assume this is the poster they put on the book but like it's the tom hanks and Howie Berry to the right and like all the characters like on the poster looking together it's, it's the classic hollywood staggered like character setup you've seen before for any star yeah. wars or big blockbuster pirates of the caribbean and this poster like always stuck in my head for whatever reason because i think this was one of the first big movies that like I really heard about as I was getting into movies of like not just like enjoying the watching this stuff, but, like the Hollywood news of like who's gonna star on this and what's tracking and all that sort of stuff. Uh, because like around 2013 is the time that I was allowed to be on the internet probably way too much. And my parents are like, I don't know, he's going through puberty. Just let him if he wants to be on the computer for a little bit and play Minecraft, what are we gonna do about it? You were a big Minecraft guy. I remember that. That was that was your whole life for a minute. You know, I'm not going to lie, I still enjoy Minecraft. It's fun to go build some buildings, guys. I don't, I don't know what to tell Good you. People you. call it childish. It's fun to be like, oh, I'll build a little medieval kingdom, but that's beside the point. Um, and so, like, this was one of the things that I would put on as I was playing Minecraft. I can't believe we're talking about Minecraft's Atlas, but, like, as I would play Minecraft, I'd have, like, another browser app just watching or listening to something. It was always, like, movie shows. And Cloud Atlas is one of those, like, from the Wachowskis, people made The Matrix, and the, the Cloud Atlas, Tom Hanks, Halle Berry, because those people are, like, really big stars at that point. And it kind of just, like, I remember the downfall of Cloud Atlas, of people like, huh, it's not getting good reviews, people didn't really go out to see it, and all that sort of stuff. And then it just kind of faded away for a while from, like, the pop culture consciousness. But there's been, like, I mean, you've done more research than I have, but there's been, like, some reclaiming of this movie in the last, I don't know, five, ten years, right? The people who work on this movie, like, speak of it as, as like, a religious experience. And I, I don't know if I go, you know, that heavy into my praise for it, but I I really respect the ambition and the scope of this. I mean, this is an AD and producer's fucking nightmare trying to make this kind of film. I mean, as we'll get into later, but, like, the, the structure of the movie, the the gender swapping and kind of, like, you know, uh, just different effects for different people with in different storylines, just really complex things that like, I don't know, like I look at as somebody who, who hopes to someday make something of some you know, caliber. Um, I look at it and I'm just like, wow, the, my ambitions are like really, really low scale. You know, I kind of need to maybe try and think a little broader. I know this is an adaptation, um, but still to like execute on this material, you know, so well, David Mitchell, the writer of this, the author of the uh, Cloud Atlas book has spoken very highly of this adaptation. He really enjoys it. So to capture that, you know, essence of the book and do so many really cool things. And the production of the history of this movie is absolutely insane. Uh, I really respect the, the craft of the movie. I'm not sure I love it. Um, 
but it, it's it's definitely something I think that everybody should watch. I would recommend it. So I think this is maybe my first Wachowski's movie because I haven't seen any of the Matrix movies. Um, I'd what? have to really go back. Yeah, look, we've got no, 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 no. Hold on, didn't you see okay. the Matrix for a class or something? I think I watched parts of it, but I don't think I ever watched the whole thing. Oh my god, that's. I'm sorry, Nick. I'm sorry. Look, I That's probably should be on this episode, but I, I, I'm telling you the truth here. I, I, I haven't seen a Wachowski movie really until now. Um, um, okay. Sorry. <laughs> I feel like maybe I'd be better off leaving that revelation in the past. Um, <laughs> you're looking at me a little differently. You're like, I don't know if I want to be in the same room with this guy. He's not. A I want you. Pro. I want you to go in the room and put on some makeup. Maybe make yourself look different. Uh, you, you decide what that means, and and come back and talk to me. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Maybe I will do that. Um, but I, I am continually like impressed by what this movie of like, I, I had mixed feelings about it. I think more so than Nick, but the thing he's saying about the ambition and drive, because if you've seen this movie, you'll really understand where we're coming from of like, this is a crazy movie that really should be way worse than it is. And I don't even mean from like a, a script or a narrative, but just like, it should look awful. The direction should be really weird and like bad, but it all kind of, comes together and the performances are all pretty strong throughout and it's just really an impressive achievement where like even if you don't like this movie um i think it is worth watching to your point because like there's something for everyone which is kind of the beauty of this movie that i thought is that there's so many different storylines and genres embedded into this one movie in a really unique way that if you don't like the soon me storyline or the Adam Ewing storyline. I mean, that's everyone. Um, stick around for the Robert Forrester storyline or the Timothy Cavendish, because you'll find something to latch onto. But it's just the problems then delve into like how do we splice into that and when do we cut away from that, which we'll get to later. The Neo Soul, like you said, you know, the Neo Soul section has no business looking as good as it is. And it's better than I would say a vast majority of things we see currently. When it comes to CGI worlds or, or computer, you know, digitally created worlds. So I, I really enjoyed this movie, but I think we should probably, you know, hop into a little Wachowski's retrospect, seeing as how you've never seen the fucking Matrix. But yeah, I kind of need an education now about who they are as people, Nick. <laughs> it's time to get schooled, homie. It's time to get schooled. <laughs> um, the Wachowskis get their start in comic books in 1993. The duo writes uh, the Ecotid book, which is Marvel's Razorline imprint, which lasts for, I don't know, like a year I looked up. I'm thinking it's mm. probably it's like something more like a, like a dark horse where it's probably darker lines and darker stories. But I didn't really find any books written by them. Uh, it's run by horror maestro Clive Barker at the time, which is kind of cool. So they help him out with his Hellraiser and Nightbreed series, the writing of the comic books. A lot of the early credits go to Lana. Um, at this time, <laughs> they start their own business, a construction business, which begins as a painting business, a uh, small kind of base. They then try and get their rights to Princess Bride. They also build an elevator shaft without plans or experience. They're just kind of natural born dogs with unrivaled confidence. Really just... Not afraid to take on any challenge. I really respect that. And also humble enough to be like, all right, well, you know, we're not where we're at or not where we can be just yet. So, like, let's build an elevator shaft to keep the bills, you know, paid. That's a choice. Like, I, I mean, like, their ambition, I, I don't want to just keep restating this, but, like, that is crazy to me that they were just like, I don't know, like, got nothing better to do. Let's just learn how to build elevators, I guess. I mean, it's probably lucrative. And like it's also like reflective of their careers, where it's like, hey, second film in, let's try to like completely change 
Hollywood blockbusters. You know, it's like zero to 100 starts out as a painting business. And it's like, well, you know what? I think it's time that we like probably learn how to build an elevator shaft, you know? So I just just really respect that. Or just the fact that they're like, huh, man, we can't get anything going ourselves. Let's just do our own business, which is what basically Cloud Atlas is of no one wants to fund this movie. I guess we'll just do it ourselves then. Which that's a really good point too. Like, not to get crazy off the rails, but I think you bring up something like starting a film up is basically starting a small business. It's like starting a company, mm-hmm. you know. And sometimes not even a small one. But anyways, we'll get into that later. But Wachowski's get into the film world, however, in 1990 as writers. Uh, their first credited work is a script for 1995's Assassins, starring Antonio Banderas, Julianne Moore, and Sylvester Stallone as a person named Robert Rath. It's pretty sure. much all I know, and I think that's probably just about any all anyone else needs to know. But Josh, as our resident slyhead, did you even know this existed? Uh, you know, <laughs> very much like Bob Dylan's 90s, the Stallone 90s, I kind of leave to like their own devices. Uh, we'll get into Stallone next week. That's what we call a tease in the business here. Uh, but I uh, I just kind of left that part of the guy behind. I was like, you know what? I'll pick it back up with him when he's actually talented and wanted to try different things again. I mean, I don't know. It's kind of like a one for one. You know, Bob Dylan's got Infidels in the 90s, which is a pretty good record, right? Is there that is that the 80s? And then also, you know, What's Stallone's the... got Cop- Copland in the 90s. So you get a one for one there. I mean, when we get to, like, old guys from, like, their prime being like, man, I'm getting old, huh? That's when it gets good. But when they're like, I don't know, man, I'm making an album about Under the Red Sky, and someone's like, I'm making a thing where I'm Robert Rath, and I'm trying to, like, fall in love with Julianne Moore, but also try and kill her. It's like, maybe lose the ball a little bit here, guys. Oh, you know the plot. That's pretty good, though, at least. Hey, nice. I mean, I looked (laughs) it up. I looked it up. The script, however, gets ripped to shreds by director Richard Donner and writer Brian Hedgelin, so much so that the, the Wachowskis try to have their name removed from the film. This, however, creates a spark for them, where their only way to kind of survive and tell stories in this town is to become directors themselves. So they're kind of feeling despondent after their first Hollywood experience. Assassins does earn them a deal with Warner Brothers, who produced the film. Uh, they, they fold the construction business, move out to L.A. to become full-time filmmakers, and, like, again, not people who went to film school, you know, just got an education of, of watching films. So really kind of ambitious to be like, yeah, you know what? I think the only way that we're going to do this is we can't just write. we got to direct. So, again, just absolutely unrivaled confidence and, and just really impressive. So their first feature is a neo-noir crime thriller called Bound. Bound is a moderate success. Critically respected for the Wachowski's early sense of style. I haven't seen it personally. But it's a realistic portrayal of a lesbian relationship in mainstream films at a time where they're really not as prevalent as they are now. Um, but it's kind of more of a practice test to prove to Warner Brothers that they can direct a film and run a set. As we said, they didn't go to film school. They don't really have much experience making films. Um, and that's because the Wachowskis had really big ambitions for their second feature. By 1994, they have a draft for the first Matrix film. So they shop it around, but no one really gets the film. Their sighting is too weird. It's confusing for a mainstream audience. Blah, 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 blah. So every studio you can name kind of just passes on it. There's really not even much traction until 1998. Warner Brothers, kind of in good faith after working with them on Assassins, decides to produce the trilogy. And kind of like Josh stated earlier, there's probably easily a world where this podcast now turns into the Matrix one. So I'll try not to do that. But there are touchstones in cinematic history where there is a clear before and after a film's release. I think the Matrix trilogy has to be in that pantheon. You know, the Matrix is our generation Star Wars. It's a wholly unique story, original concepts, really high, broad topics of family and philosophy, revolutionary cinematic techniques. I think about the bullet time, you know, entire CGI worlds like Zion or the ships. 
and you know characters that are completely digitally animated doing some crazy things which happen age is great it becomes a brand all into itself video games action figures comic books there's a whole anthology anime tie-in called the animatrix that released in theaters um you know who could forget the green powerade i was chugging that stuff on little league baseball um just like completely takes over really kind of the cultural pantheon has this really rich lore like star wars that's kind of like goes into all the different planets and how we got to where we are um so as a series progressive it kind of becomes more convoluted and coldly received upon initial release to the point of parody literally just like star wars <laughs> but then we look at what it influenced and what we get nowadays in retrospect and kind of say man i'd take probably three more of those over you know insert shitty movie here and this is literally their second movie you know i don't think it gets more astounding and ambitious than the matrix for your second feature it releases in 1999 and makes a boat ton of money, kind of out of nowhere, not expected. Completely changes the pop's culture landscape. The following films, I think, are kind of probably more a mixed bag critically, even with kind of a reappraisal for both. But they still pulled down well over a billion dollars together worldwide. And when Resurrections was announced, you know, 16, 17 years after the third Matrix, I was hyped. I was really excited for that movie. You know, it was a movie I rushed home, I remember, after work, you know, right around this time of year. I think it released like a couple days before Christmas and like put it on HBO Max immediately, you know, and like that was my afternoon. And I think that film kind of continues a trajectory of mixed results. But like having a new Matrix movie, you know, that many years later really meant something to people. Yeah, uh, not <laughs> my contributions to this section of the episode are a little hollow just because, you know, haven't seen The Matrix. Uh, but I will say that, like, it's clear that, like, this is one of the biggest movies of, like, the last, I don't know, 30 years, it's fair to say, just in terms of, like, oh. what it's done for culture and what it's inspired. And I think it's odd that the Wachowskis really have been kind of left in the dust of influence and, like, credit where they aren't looked at on like the same pantheon or like same regard warmly the way that like a lot of other people like people still look at george lucas like oh man i love george lucas you know he's a little crazy guy he doesn't like it's poetry it rhymes whereas the wachowski sisters have all been just kind of like left in the dust like it's really weird that culture just kind of left them in the lurch i know people showed up for resurrections and people somewhat like it but like it's not like they've been given a lot of like no, but it was like they didn't like the culture didn't like revive it and be like, man, look at them go again. Like, it's just weird. Like, maybe we're just past that point where like the ideas of the Matrix are profound because it's been so long since its release. But it's just super weird that like they don't get the recognition I think they probably deserve where George Lucas still gets like pats on the backs. Stupid alpha males on the internet are literally telling you, you're living in the Matrix. Yeah. You know, like it has taken like just a, an, another level of cultural reference and influence I, I mean to me it's one of those things you know matrix resurrections was really rushed lana's the only one attached to it as far as writing and directing so it, it didn't really seem like it was even one of those movies they wanted to make it was more like like after the first three movies they're like no more you know like they really dug in their heels even throughout the years as warner brothers would be like hey it's there on the table. Like people, people want to do it. Keanu's down. You know, obviously, you know, we'll bring back the cast. You guys can write and direct, all that stuff. It just really was one of those things that they're they enjoy doing projects that are like all in the same vein, kind of, but radically different in approach and how they get there. And I really enjoy that about their filmmaking. 
Well, to me, it, it seems like, and you know more than I do from your research, but it seems like they didn't want the Matrix to define their whole filmography. Like they wanted to try different things and they wanted to branch out and just do different things. Like when you look at what happens after the Matrix, which we'll get into, I think, in a little more detail here, but it's Speed Racer, which is completely different <laughs> than almost any Dude, other movie I, that came I out. I can't wait to talk about Speed. Our Speed Racer like section will be brief this week, but like, please, everyone, go watch Speed Racer. Like, go watch that movie. Do yourself a favor. Just have fun for two hours. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen it either, but like the clips that I see, it's like it's wild and radical and it feels incredibly anime inspired and just like super, super unique. Whereas The Matrix feels far more like your normal movie to a heightened level. And then for Speed Racer, they go to Cloud Atlas, which is even more just crazy. So it feels like they were very conscious of like, let's get away from The Matrix. But then it doesn't seem like they got unattached from the ball and chain. They've just been stuck to it pretty much ever since. They're really great world builders. They come from comic books. They come from Dungeons and Dragons, playing that together a lot. But I think sometimes, yeah, like you said, they have kind of become a little like fantasy sci-fi adjacent where it's like, hey, that's kind of their thing. That's their bag. But that's, it really seems like that's what they want to do. They make, they make it really like long thought out decisions and they're very anonymous they don't really do interviews they're not like doing a lot of pressers for their movies so like when they were that when they are attached to something i still have that air of kind of like what's that you know like i i still clearly remember coming out of my apartment one morning and like jake was watching jupiter ascending like that's just a movie that's on a a streaming service that you can throw on yeah you know like they are just constant sense eight is on netflix their their latest um creation so like they're 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 around still. They're still making stuff. They're still culturally relevant. And I think the fact that they're not around so much is like, hey, you get us when you get us. When we're, when we're not around, we're, we're probably tinkering or working on something. And to your point, I would say when they do come out and announce something, people that really care about movies, I think their ears perk up because it's not – I don't think they're a type of people – that want to do a movie just to like make a movie. It seems like everything they make is intrinsically personal to them. And like, there's a big motivating factor as to why they're coming out to do this. Whereas there's a lot of other directors that just are like, like the, uh, we've beat on them a bunch, but like the Russo brothers, it's like, Oh, we're going to make cherry and the gray man. And then we're going to go make, uh, I don't know. They're producing the fall guy. It's like, well, what do you feel about those movies? Like what's inspiring you to put your name, to attach it to that project. And it's just like, I don't know, it's cool. <laughs> Whereas the Wachowskis, exactly. I think, think about these things far more intellectually and far more like personally and really want to make sure it's what they want to tell. And that's really laudable in this world of Hollywood where it just seems like they want to do stuff if they want to do it, and that's it. Totally. So the Matrix trilogy releases, like we just talked about, and the Wachowskis essentially own Hollywood at this point. Like, just their town, you know, completely changes the landscape like we talked about. Um... But their next project is a script for V for Vendetta. It's directed by Jeff Mateague. It's a, but it's really just another Wachowski movie. It's dripping with their sense of prose and sense of cinematic style. I think they even shoot second unit on one of the, like the, the, the days of the film or like a good chunk of the film. But it's a B-minus movie, I would say. I think the main draw here for anyone who hasn't seen it is probably the electric and maybe the most angry and radical Natalie Portman has been outside of Black Swan. Uh, that's one thing that I think that is an underrated element of the Wachowskis is they get good performances out of people. You know, uh, Neo is a type 
of character and Keanu Reeves is a type of actor, right? And I'm not going to like sit here and lampoon either, but like he does a good job with the, those films and what he's asked to do. I think they get a great Lawrence Fishburne, badass performance. Carrie Ann Moss is great in those movies, you know? And as we'll talk about with Cloud Atlas, I think it's probably the most interesting any of these people have been in the past 20 years, in my personal opinion. So they do get really good performances. And I think this is just another example of that with the Natalie Portman one. Obviously, this is a Jeff McTeague movie, but he works closely with them throughout um, their careers, whether a producer in some capacity, I believe. So, you know, they have a huge hand on this movie and I'm sure really kind of helps shape that performance. And she's awesome in it. Have you seen V for Vendetta? Probably not. I have. I, this is one of the few, oh, I guess, that oh, I have Oh, you got me there, folks. <laughs> I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen V for Vendetta. Um, and and I, I don't remember, like, a lot of the details. But again, that's another iconic movie that they're attached to. Like, remember, remember the 5th of November. People have taken on the Guy Fox mask ever since. And people who might totally. want to be like, well, V for Vendetta was pretty big because, you know, that's Alan Moore. Is it Frank Miller? It's Alan Moore, right? It's Alan Moore. People be like, well, Alan Moore, you know, he did it or whatever. It's like, yeah, but you don't see Guy Fox mask come out in public until after the movie kind of gives it like a life. Like that's they're the people who breathe life into that story and make it the pop culture like thing it is now. <laughs> you know, like it's just their their touch on like culture is is insane. And I know Alan Moore is like a huge like I hate this. Like I wish this was never made. I wish you know they never used my material. Love you, Alan Moore. One of my favorite writers of all time. We've probably talked about him on this show. Huge asshole. Just kind of an asshole. Yeah. You know, V for Vendetta is a solid comic book adaptation. I think it looks really cool. I think that, you know, it follows the source material pretty well. I haven't read, you know, the book kind of like you said in a really long time. But I remember watching it and being like, hey, this is a pretty faithful adaptation. You know, I think they did a good job with the source material. It, it's it's a pretty long book, you know. I think unfortunately some of these concepts i think cloud atlas falls in this category if they're released a couple years later they're a six-part eight-part miniseries you know and i don't necessarily like that idea either you know but i just see them maybe working or connecting with a broader audience in that regard which is sucks but it's something we talk about all the time on the podcast but it's just kind of the way that we interact with media nowadays and film and stuff well i would also say that v for vendetta is another thing for them uh going forward into cloud atlas is that, and you'll have to correct me on this, but it feels like this is their most anti-capitalist, radical, revolutionary project, which is something that is intrinsically linked to Cloud Atlas. No, dog. No, dog. It's, it's, that, it's that, motherfucking, that motherfucking speed... No, it's that motherfucking speed racer, dude. Oh, it's speed <laughs> racer. we're talking about. Yes, Wait, dude. he's like... Speed racer? He's like down with speed the Speed racer is about corporate greed. No, speed racer is all oh. about corporate greed, dude. It's like, racer just wants to race. And the corporate greed are coming after him, telling him to throw these races and stuff, and just like, hey, this car sucks. We're gonna get you a better car, you know. Just like, hey, you don't, you don't want to end up like your brother, do you? All those things, and like, racers just like, nah, man, let me hop behind that wheel and drive. Let me do my thing, and that's all the Wachowskis are trying to do. They're just trying to drive, homie. You gotta watch it. It's great. So as I just basically said for ten to fifteen seconds, Speed Racer is the next film by the Wachowskis. Um, it's an absolute assault on your senses. Like, please do not watch this movie if you're sensitive to light. Um, it's not a quiet frame or color choice throughout the entire movie. It's a ton of wipes, crazy pans, dissolves, etc. Uh, really cool race sequences, but it builds this really wacky and zany world that is one part LSD and one part live action anime. I, like I just said, it really does have some great social commentary beneath the surface if you look for it about capitalism, what it does to creatives who just want the freedom to execute their vision. And it, like you just brought up 
right there, it's a feeling the Wachowskis had to be feeling at this point, you know, after The Matrix and kind of some of the backlash for V for Vendetta. But this movie was literally almost on my 2023 discoveries list. Like, I really like Speed Racer in a shameless way of we all love this movie now. You know, not in the sense of like, I've always been there from the beginning. I love this movie. But it's a, it kind of is the same thing as a Scott Pilgrim where audiences just are not accustomed to this kind of movie. They're not ready for it. So it doesn't even make back its $120 million budget. Jesus Christ. Just for everybody, one more time, $120 million Speed Racer movie. Yeah, that's right. Like, the Wachowskis were so fucking unstoppable at this point. They got $120 million to make a movie about a hero that most people going to see the movie had no long-term relationship with. But, like, where are my Speed Racer heads at? Unite. I just want to read some of the character names of Speed Racer, if you'll let me. Because I'm just, I'm just looking it up. Do it. And I'm just amazed. Racer X, baby. What's up? Well, I love Matthew Fox, Racer X, cool name. But then it's like Speed Racer, Pops Racer, Mom Racer, Rex Racer. Uh, we got Spriddle Racer. Kind of, kind of interested by what's going, what's going on with Spriddle Racer and Pops Racer, played by John Goodman. John Goodman throwing absolute heat. He was going through some things during that, and the production rallied around them. Another thing that the Wachowskis do is make actors feel embraced like every single one of their sets it just sounds like a like a family unit so um i really enjoy speed racer again in a shameless way josh cross the 400 blows off your list and put speed racer out there instead okay we're gonna we're gonna so for people who don't know nick has given me a list of five movies i have to watch before the year ends and tell the audience 400 blows yeah it's the 400 blows it's shortcuts it's high and low it was a french connection and it was apocalypse now uh, I have gotten to one of those so far. It's the French Connection. I think I'm going to put another one on tonight. I don't know which one yet, Nick, but I, I, I've been, I'm committed to one a week, and, and it's it's Friday. I got to get clacking here, cookie clacking. Um, cookie clacking, boy. But I don't think Speed Racer is going to be on the list of like the addendum list. I just think it might be one of those of it's a it's a rainy Sunday. Football's over in March, and I'm like, all right, let's just get Speed Racer done. Let's see what this is about. God, I hope you watch it. I hope you and Devin watch it together, long-time listener, friend of the show. Wait, why, why do you want us to watch it together? You think it's going to be like this magical journey of like, oh my God, Speed Racer? You just think it's going to be like a fun time to just like goof around with? No, I, I mean, I think you guys will have a, a fun time goofing around, but I always enjoy like hearing, hearing other people's opinions on movies. And yeah, okay. Devin's a, a good friend of the show, and he's always got some good sage wisdom. Uh, but I think there is an element to the Wachowski story at this point we need to talk about. We're going to remain respectful and do our best to use the correct language. Um, but the Wachowskis are both transgender. Lana, who's formerly Larry, has spoken on many occasions about her gender dysmorphia throughout grade school and into her adult life. It affected her really deeply, you know, so much so that while working on the Matrix sequel, she slipped into a really deep depression. She's worried about how her family would, you know, embrace her and society would accept her. But her family supported her for the jump, having suspected for a long time, apparently. Um, but it's around this time that Larry became Lana and came out to the public as transgender, which is a brave move that requires a lot of confidence and belief in oneself. Um, something the deal has absolutely never lacked, as we've talked about. Uh, Lily, who's formerly Andy, transitioned in 2016, making the duo of the first transgender mainstream filmmakers. They've spoken at human rights, GLAAD, and equality campaigns. Uh, their bravery and openness about their experience really deserves praise. So much respect to these two badass trans women. Just wanted to, you know, pay... Pay respect to that because there's a big part of their story, and this is kind of when that kind of begins for them, and that journey starts in their lives. 
Yeah, I don't think you can divorce them from, you know, their their gender identity because it is such a cool part of who they are and like how they've seem to have been punk rock and always been and and found acceptance in who they are versus what other people would. You know, I'm I'm sure there's a lot of people who have struggled with the same thing, but because of the fears of rejection in the Hollywood system, especially, which is, you know, especially in early two thousand, what is it, six, seven, eight? That range? Yeah, right around there, yeah. Far less willing to accept people who are so radically different and feel so radically different, um, but they don't care. Like eventually, they just just to be themselves, and I think it's incredibly impressive of them and just like so punk rock and cool. And be like, hey man, I'd rather be happy doing what I do and being who I am than being miserable trying to fit into a system that doesn't want to accept me. Kudos to them, much respect, and uh, shout out the dogs. I'd love to have them on the show. I bet they would be an interesting talk. Someday we're going to get, uh, hopefully, one famous director on here. Somebody who's worked on a famous movie. That would be That's my goal. <laughs> uh, but Natalie Portman, Portman, just like me, had her face in a book in between takes for V for Vendetta. That's right, folks. I'm in the background of V for Vendetta. I'm uh, guard number eight. Hugo even throws a knife in my throat. Really cool. <laughs> <sighs> Intrigued by the cover, Lana asked her about the book on set, and she began to gush about it. Lana read the book afterwards and passed it along to Lily, and the doer were enamored, like telling everyone they knew that they had to read this book, and this book was called Cloud Atlas. So the Wachowskis pretty much immediately are gung-ho about making this novel into a film, but like we've talked about, Cloud Atlas is a massive story, spanning different galaxies and planets, different timelines and languages that parcel out and weave themselves into a tapestry over six storylines. So they were drawn to the scale of its ideas, to its lack of cynicism, and to the dramatic possibilities inherent in the book's recurring moments of hope. So they also wanted to work on something with Twiker, whose 1998 movie Run, Lola, Run, they'd loved. Josh, you've seen Run, Lola, Run? Yeah, I mean, when you take four years of German in high school, eventually they just put on a couple movies to like make you stop complaining about how hard it is to speak in German for four years. Uh, this mm. was one of them. It's a great movie. Odd movie, oh. though. <laughs> Uh, I, I wouldn't say bad because it's been so long since I've seen it, but I remember being like, what's going on? Because there's like animated sequences cut into the film from what I remember. And it's super vibrant and super like, I don't remember a lot of it, but it's like this couple, this German couple robs a store and then the guy tries to go back in time to stop it. But then there's the animated segments of them going through time. Am I wrong? Yeah, I think it's the other way around. I think the girl does, but like I haven't seen it in a long time either. I've just loved the style of it. Like red is a huge prominent color throughout the movie. A lot of close-ups, like really cool, like fast-paced editing. Uh, it's a good movie. I think I need to re-see it to like kind of have a firm grasp. But I saw it at NHGI. Shout out, you know. So a lot I mean, of great movies I think saw for the first time there. I mean, at the time you're watching it in Concord, I might be watching it at the same time too. Kind of a big run, will or run city, I guess. I don't know. It's kind of no. That's like our Cloud Atlas, dog. We're off that. We're off that motherfucking Cloud Atlas. I would say though that even from my limited memory of Run Lola Run, I think it's very easy to see the Wachowskis are really like drawn to Tom Twiker because it's the same sort of like avant-garde style and embracingness of more like kitschy elements of filmmaking rather than just doing something formulaic or simple like to do what you're doing with tom twiker and one roller run which is animated segments and not just like i don't know um 
what's the Richard Linklater? Uh, Scanner Darkly. Like the Scanner Darkly's animation within that movie is like realistic, kind of cool, kind of interesting. The Run Will Run animation is like really cartoonish in the middle of like this sometimes really dark, like brutal movie about like robbers and criminals. It's very, very just odd. So I can see why the Wachowskis at this point are like, man, I'd love to work with that guy. Yeah, totally. I'm uh, I'm interested for the Scanner Darkly episode because it's now been brought up three times on this podcast, which yeah. is three times more than anyone else has talked about Scanner Darkly. So episode 137, I believe, in the docket, Scanner Darkly. Look look out for that one, folks. We're making our way. I mean, yeah, like um, the, we joke about this, but we do have a, a scheduled document for the show, and we've brought up a couple movies as a joke. Be like, oh, we'll eventually do that episode. I have put all those into the schedule, and they are they are there. We will get to them. I have the list here, handy dandy, real quick as we divulge. Um, it is episode or week one hundred and thirty one, a scanner darkly. Week one hundred and thirty three, JFK. Don't know why. Don't know why we're choosing it for that late. Maybe we get to it. Maybe we don't. Week one thirty seven, Howard the Duck, just on the list. So get ready in about I don't know what is it like seventy more weeks. Yeah, something like that. I just like to say, I look at those more. You know, some people are like, oh yeah, we've done. If you like do something for a while, like nice, I've been in that routine for a year. Mm-hmm. I look forward to those more as like milestones than I do being like, oh cool, we've been doing this for two years. Oh, we're into our third year, whatever it may be. Like those to me are going to be the accomplishments. So get ready for the one thirties to get real fucking weird around here. <laughs> the road the podcast. three hour Howard the Duck episode we've been building up. It's like it's like the MCU <laughs> built up Thanos. We built up the Howard the Duck episode. <laughs> oh man uh, so the Wachowskis get Twiker to take the German translation of the novel on a vacation to the south of France and the book bites down hard and doesn't let go he's asking his wife on their family vacation to pull over just so he can finish reading a chapter he's just sitting on the beach with this massive tomb just just ripping through it so as soon as he finished the book he calls Lana in the middle of the night where she's staying in San Francisco and tells her he's like totally in just starts gushing about the material again really weird how this book affects people like I it makes me kind of want to read it now again it seems like like a religious experience for people but I don't know I mean I it's it's kind of the movie's the same way because I think it's it's a really weird pastiche of like stories intertwined in a lot of relatable feelings of yearning and like longing and like belonging. So it's as much as it's like, man, soon me is trying to lead a revolution against a bunch of clones. It's also about like, who am I? What do I do? What is love? And I think that's a giant reason why this movie continues to have the life it has because those elements are so identifiable. Yes, they're very existential high concepts that I think everybody kind of asks themselves at one time or another. Um, but the Wachowskis and Twiker are wrapped up in different projects at the time, so they realize something as ambitious as Cloud Atlas is probably going to have to wait for a little bit. Also, they need to drum up some money. So in the meantime, everyone keeps writing and working on projects, and there is one out of this bunch that we have got to do some Road Dogs history on. Uh, I've teased this to Josh throughout the week. I tried to keep most of it outside of the document as we do to just kind of have a little zag here on the show when we feel like we've got some some zany film history to hit somebody with. So, Josh, at this point, we're going to talk about a movie that has not been made to this date called Cobalt Neural Nine. Are you ready for this? This is like Day of the Dolphin for people who remember the, that great episode where <laughs> I had a separate document that I didn't want Nick to see any of the details. So now this is where we're going, and I know nothing about Cobalt Neural Nine. Yeah, so supposedly a lot of this movie's script is gibberish, almost intentionally to throw the reader off the scent of the trail. 
this personally to me from what I've read seems like overkill because there's no goddamn trail to be found with this kind of film. Uh, executives told them this would never ever get made. Uh, <laughs> Wachowskis are fucking ballers. And if they wanted to make this in the year 2023, one ticket, please. And also let me read the script. So okay. this movie is called uh, Cobalt Neural 9. Its main story is told in kind of a Cloverfield-esque form of flashbacks by di- digital archaeologists in the future who are sorting through found footage from like CNN, pundits, and chips from old digital cameras from the U.S. occupation of Iraq. The heroes are okay. a gay couple. One is an American soldier named with, you know, very little an irony, Butch. And there's an Iraqi soldier who's turned into a militant. Butch is endearing, young, and a ravishingly handsome Marine. Uh, this is a quote from an article that I read from Variety back then, who just wants to, quote unquote, fuck and kill everything in Iraq until he falls in love with the Iraqi soldier. Wow. Okay. Uh the two meet while Butch is on combat patrol in Iraq during the Second Gulf War, and soon enough they're engaged in what is described as graphic sex. Um, actual line from the script, they rut like animals behind the fence, uh, albeit oh, while disguised in burqas. Yeah. The two soldiers' relationship blossoms, and Butch begins to get to know his lover's family, but after he inadvertently draws attention to their ancestral home, disaster strikes. This tragedy radicalizes the pair, and they become convinced that the only way to rid the world of evil is to kill the architect of the invasion, the then-president of the United States, George W. Bush. So during one of the president's secret sorties to Iraq, they attempt to assassinate him. Wow. That's (laughs) what do you think of that? That's a synopsis right there, folks. Running like animals and trying to kill GW Bush. Dude, and I guess there's like a part like Jesse Ventura and like other people actually film scenes for is like the CNN pundits talking heads, which is great because like you know, we had we have Alex Jones now, but just being able to see Jesse Ventura in a hundred, like you know, like back then with like weird crystals on his head and like a, different colored eyes. I guess they were doing a bunch of weird makeup stuff. I would have signed me up. You know, I'll watch that. So, how far did this get? Like, was this ever like a thing of like absolutely nowhere? Just, okay, so nowhere at all. Okay, very cool. They filmed they filmed some like found footage, like I talked about, like Jesse Ventura and I think Ariana Huffington, like actually filmed scenes where they just like threw them lines with like, "Hey, talk about the Gulf War," like or like whatever, and just like really tried to do some found footage, CNN kind of thing, or like interviews of people talking about you know hundred years in the future, like the fallout of the Iraq War, what I'm assuming would be the assassination of George W. Bush, uh, but like. Really kind of just a fascinating thing of just like, wow, like what radical thinkers and like just absolutely like extra, like completely like abstract idea that I would never even like begin to think was going to be what Cobalt Neural 9 was going to divulge into. I mean, the title makes me think like sci-fi warfare, like way more of like a cyberpunk Fighting on ships. Yeah. 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 Not, you know. To a gay love story embedded in the second Which is fine. War. That's interesting. Yeah, we're not, no, cool. We're not against that. At the Road Dogs podcast, you know, love is love. Like, we're not trying to say anything like that, but like, just an absolutely bonkers concept thrown in the assassination of George W. Bush, too, in the in the middle of the, you know, second Gulf War is fucking insane, too. <laughs> just I'm absolutely shocked that they haven't tried crazy. to revive this as a comic book. Because, I mean, uh, this is where I, this is where they got to start comics, and comics are far more open and accepting of, I think, <laughs> murdering politicians in real life or, or putting real-life figures in comics. Is there's that distance of you're not hiring an actor to play him and then having them stage the death of George W. Bush 
So I'm surprised there haven't been like talks of like, hey, Dark Horse, hey, I mean, maybe there have been, but it. Well, and they, at one point or another, they own a, a comic production company. You know, yeah. they, they put out Matrix Matrix books. So I don't know if they're still doing that, if they're still publishing comics, or, or if they're still part of that business. But yeah, I agree with you. Throw this into a graphic novel. Like this would be fucking dope. Yeah, like it. It seems like this would be far more. I guess, I mean, like, look, they made Fight Club 2 and 3 into comic books. I think we could fit, you know, Cobalt Neural 9 in there. Yeah, I didn't even know there was a 2 and a 3. I don't even want to know that or read them. No, no, you don't. (laughs) So in February 2009, the trio meets up in Costa Rica. They rent this really cool secluded house that's near the ocean. And they knew the process was going to be daunting. Mitchell himself has said his book was unfilmable. The actual journey sounds like it was a lot of fun. There's boogie boarding in the morning, you know, hanging out on the beach, working on the beach for the rest of the day. They were doing this thing where they prepped dinner together at night where Lily made this uh, beer beer chicken where you put a can of beer inside the chicken. Uh, Lana described it as kind of a childhood camp. Sounds like a lot of fun. Like they've seemed like a very embracing duo to work with. You know, we've talked about other people on this podcast who are very like kind of overbearing of their material or like the Coen brothers who was like, Hey, we really like their movies, but you're never really going to get a clear, distinct answer from them. They seem quite cynical about the world. Whereas like the Wachowskis are almost a complete inverse where it's like, Hey, like anybody's welcome. Like, if if you've got a good idea, like good the best idea wins. Like let's let's work on this together because we enjoy what you bring to the table. Right. Um, but the main challenge really is the novel's convoluted structure. The chapters are ordered chronologically into the middle of the book, at which point the sequence reverses. Lana said this like just would not work in a film, saying it would be impossible to introduce a new story ninety minutes into a movie when we've kind of already established the trajectory of where we're going. So, yeah, like, I guess from the limited research I've done, it's kind of starting with the Ewing storyline, then going to the Forbisher storyline, and so on and so forth, till we get to Soon Me. Then we go from Soon Me all the way back to the Ewing storyline, right? That's my reading of it. Again, I haven't read the bookie either, but yeah, I would assume that's kind of accurate. Yeah, I, so it's not the Sue Me the last one then. It, it'd be Hanks with Zachary and, and Halle Berry's Merwin. That'd be the last. That's where the book ends. So I think. In 2134. Yeah, appropriately, that's the end of the movie and the book, I suppose. Um, do you think this ever could have worked, though? Like doing the movie that way instead of the way it is, out of curiosity? If they, if they were like, hey, we're not going to make this into a film, like. We're doing a miniseries, sure. Yeah, I think this works. But I do agree with her that the momentum of a film, what the what I find really good about this movie, and it's kind of going to spoil some things that I want to talk about. Is I do not find the pacing or the editing confusing. I really don't. I think if you, the the main criticism you have for this film, if you watch this film, is well, the stories that don't they don't really weave together. Yes, they do. They they're really well done. And if you watch the visual imagery and you understand film language, or you are just like actually paying attention to the movie, you will see those things come through. And there's little, whether it be insert shots of actual objects or the framing of characters and how they walk across the screen, it, it, it completely tells you a, a, a clear story. To, in my opinion, personally, I do not find this movie to be confusing in that regard. However, if we're 90 minutes into the movie and like everything has been kind of moving in this historical, chronological order, and then you completely flip it and you, we still have like, we don't have nearly as much time than 
we did originally. Like by hour, an hour and 30 minutes into this movie, all six storylines are fucking cooking. They're all grooving. Yeah. Like you're really invested into all of them. If you flip that and we got to start all over 90 minutes in and we only have like another hour and 20 minutes left, the audience is not going to know what's going on. I think the beauty of this film is that in the first five to 10 minutes, we're already kind of off kilter in a great way, but not in the sense of like, I don't understand what's going on. Well, I also think the audience be confused because you spend 90 minutes with Hank's playing the evil guy on the ship. And then it's like, oh, no, now he's I don't remember who he's in the for. He's in the hotel worker or now here's Ben Wishaw. Yeah. So the second they start to or think, like, OK, yeah, or they'd be like, OK, so the Tom Hanks is out of the movie now. And then an hour and a half later, he comes back as a completely different character. I think it really would throw off the whole audience and it'd make it even more confusing than it already can come off initially. Um, I would agree that I don't find the editing of this movie confusing, but I don't, I don't love it. And I think the pacing, I would disagree with a little bit. And this is probably one of my biggest flaws with the movie personally, is that I never get a chance to really settle into one storyline for like a tremendous extended amount of time, which is what I think it kind of needs. And by extension of the fact that the movie is so different in its storylines of setting and tone and genre that it, it's even harder to get dislodged so often where we'll go five minutes with the Forbisher storyline, 20 minutes without five minutes with the Sunmi storyline, 10 minutes without. And so like the way that we're always just like going from one thing to another and the fact that it goes from like a ship to an alien ship, and then like the, the cannibal warfare versus just like Hugh Grant and old age, maybe I'll tell you, it's just like, it throws me off as I was watching it to the point where like, I just couldn't find a footing with it and be like, okay, I'm locked in. Or the second that I start to get locked in, it knocks me out, which is maybe the movie's point is that it is frustrating to go about watching these stories because there is moments where like you could see them change into a different path, but they don't, you know? Yeah. I don't, I don't necessarily agree with you all the way on that. I think it is intentional. I think if we do spend an overwhelming time in any of these storylines, the film would just get bogged down and I think would become boring. I think one of its things that it does is the fact that it moves quite briskly throughout the storylines and also sets the tone for the different storylines. You know, Cavendish kind of is like, you you feel like you're being in a narrative film about like some kind of zany story. Like you said, it almost feels like a, a live action Pixar movie. Josh was talking yeah. about it. I actually think that's a great comparison. And then like you jump into something so like radically different as like the soon me like future or the 2134 Hawaii storyline like there is no time to like be in any place too long to get bogged down which i find to be quite difficult with six different storylines but I, th I also think like i said to you off mic i watched this movie twice i rented it on amazon and like just it's been super crazy it's why we haven't been around for the past two weeks it's just like been we've both been running around dealing with stuff i didn't get to finish watching on amazon so i had to go to the library I took it out of the library and I've watched it twice now. And it's definitely a movie that like even some of the small acting character bits, like things that I was going back and looking, like the tell of like uh, Cavendish having slept with Georgette, Hugh Grant's wife in Denholm in that storyline. Uh, yeah. Really good stuff, like really plays better out when you see it a second time. Also, just some of the like editing things that might be a little confusing or like you're like, oh, well, that doesn't really like 
fit together seemed to work for me better the second time around. There still is a chunk in this movie. I would say when it hits like an hour and 52 minutes, there is probably a 20 to 25 minute section of it where I do start to feel that editing. A lot of the Ewing stuff on the ship is pretty lame. Just him like whirling around like, oh, yeah. as Tom Hanks slowly poisons him. And like, you know, I, I just find uh, some of the stuff in that to be just a little bit slow and, and kind of feeling like this has to be here because it's in the book. But I think as a, as an overall, it feels like an, almost like an exercise. The movie's editing. I think it, I think it passes the test. I don't. I don't. I just don't. I don't know. I, I just never felt locked into one thing, and that's kind well, of. Well, you didn't have a scene where somebody talks for you know they don't talk about something for like yeah. ten minutes and like actually find some discovery in this movie. It really is kind of abstract. That's the other thing too. Is like I like how no one is going for like. In any of the storylines, they're they're not like cognizant of like, hey, we have to like change the future. You know, there is like like yeah. you said, there's some there's some great literary moments in the script that flourish, but like for the most part, what they're going after is just what they're going after in that time period. You know, they're not aware of like the the huge scope that they play in history. Yeah, I think that's also a good point. Is that this movie is not more so about changing the fate of the universe as it is changing the fate of these people. Because, mm-hmm. you know, in actuality, that's probably the only you can change about the world in your short time on it is your relationship to people and how that kind of evolves and moves. Um, but I would just say that the editing and, and the script struggle with me in certain sections so that when we cut away for extended period of times and go to different parts of it, I just get knocked out. I'm like, I want to go back to that part right now. I want to see the resolution of it. I want to see what's going to happen next is you always leave us on a cliffhanger to then cut to some other storyline. And it's just frustrating. But at the same time, as another issue that we'll talk about later in this movie, I don't know how else you would do it almost. So it's hard for me to criticize it and go, that's bad. I would have done it a different way because I don't have a good answer of how else you do this effectively. Yeah. I don't think they did either as they had no idea what to do with all the other storylines and characters. They like broke the book down into hundreds of scenes, copied them onto colored in darts cards and spread the cards on the floor with each color representing a different character or time period. They said that the house looked like a a den of like garden index cards. (laughs) Uh, At the end of the day, they'd pick up the cards in an order that they hoped would work at the, as the arc of the film and reading from the cards, Lana would dictate narrative and they rearrange the story next day, do it all over again. Just like completely kind of like what you said, like really kind of having a hard time. And I think the other thing that you might be feeling too, is the manipulation of the edits. Like, the film being so earnest with its content, maybe just like how you're like, Oh wow. Each one of these feels like a little chapter of a cliffhanger. Like, can I just like yeah. have the full entree instead of keep getting little bites of the appetizer? So I get what you're saying. I understand your criticism. I think it's a fair one. Um, it was on the day before they left Costa Rica, however, that they had a breakthrough um, that they could convey the idea of eternal recurrence, which was so central to the novel and is so central to the novel, by having the same actors appear in multiple storylines, playing souls, not characters, in Twiker's words. Uh, this would allow the narrative currents of the book to merge and to be separate at the same time. So on the flight home, Lana and Lily carried the stack of rubber band cards they would soon convert into the first chapter of the screenplay, which they then sent to Twiker. Uh, I think we should probably talk about that idea now about the uh, playing yeah. different souls. Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I just want to hit real quick before we get to that is that uh, this is a really impressive script and pre-production process because whereas the movie makes it very clear 
which soul is which and which is reoccurring. The book does not, right? The book is very much about this is the character. So when you're the Wachowskis and Twyker and you're trying to break down the novel, it's not as simple as some things we've heard about with other like adaptations where the Coen brothers read No Country for Old Men and they write the whole thing down as a script and then trim it down. Or uh, what's the story that PTA had about Inherent Vice where like he read the whole book and would make each scene like a scene? Yeah, he read the he read the whole book and wrote every page like as a scene. Yeah. Whereas this is much more six different storylines, which then the Wachowskis have to figure out how to interweave to one another with that actor. So you have to then go like, okay, which character, which soul is also in Adam Sturgis or is Jim Sturgis playing in this era, in this era, in this era, and Hanks and Hanks and Hanks. And so it's that much more difficult <laughs> and really, really impressive that I think it all pretty much lands the plane in that regard. There's no continuity errors that I can see no. or, or feel throughout the film. It's really executed in, in a supreme way and such a unique idea. Like each movie, it seems like there is a little piece of the Wachowskis in, like we've talked about. This obviously, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, speak for them or anything, but, you know, this, that idea of doing that must have spoken to their personal experience that they were going through at the time as well of kind of these ideas of, you know, gender and, and how the things change over time and souls and instead of just like your identity is not, you know, what your sexuality is or your gender was really kind of an interesting concept. And a concept that I think other directors would not be willing to engage in because they'd find it too confusing or too weird. And they'd probably just be like, I don't know. We just had eight different actors for each different storyline. And yeah, that's just as confusing for the audience because the audience at least can walk in and go, okay, Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks. And it's a recognizable face that they may have a hard time being like, oh, man, he's under 50 feet of makeup, but at least I can see who that person is and I know who that recognizable star is. Same with Halle Berry. Whereas if a different director is approaching this and is like, okay, we're going to cast, I don't don't know why I always say Nicolas Cage, we're going to cast Nicolas Cage in this one role and then in this other timeline it's going to be played by someone else. It's not as easy for an audience to understand in a really already challenging movie that's throwing a lot at you constantly. Yeah, you said Nick Cage because Nick Cage is always the right answer. But you're 100% right. I agree with you. The other thing, too, is like, to me, on the second viewing, it became almost like an Easter egg to be like, oh, that's Holly Berry, like in the like, soon me storyline. She's the evil doctor who's like got the like computer in his eye. So like, it is kind of like a hidden Easter egg. Should talk about here. I think Josh brought up a little thing in the document. I hadn't thought about it really. Um because it kind of came and went. There is some controversy around this movie and kind of did hurt the film's yeah. release a little about uh, non-Asian actors playing Asian roles in the film through makeup. Uh, it looks very strange. It's jarring throughout the film. Not a huge fan of the way it looks. Um, I do think, however, this film's content and the way that it's it's made, you know, um, who plays who is really not relevant. It's It's kind of a movie about the future and just I think people are going to look different in the future, whether that, you know, that's an accurate depiction or not is, is completely up for debate and is probably inaccurate, but it's, you kind of get a pass when your content involves so much of like the, the, the gender changing and like the, the bending of, of characters identity throughout the movie. I don't know if I can give it a pass because, and I don't come to this out of perspective of like, we have to cancel the Wachowskis and what they did is evil and it, and it is an attempt at maliciousness. Cause I don't think it's that, you know, like there are much worse cases in Hollywood of doing yellow face which is what this is, where they just slap on like big buck teeth and like make eccentric clothes, like Asian clothes, and like, yeah, yeah, it's just a white guy in, in Asian makeup. And that's what the Wachowskis are doing. But I will say the way they distinguish an actor as an Asian individual is they give him very stereotypical looking eyes in the makeup. 
and it just doesn't look good or right. It, and it just feels yeah. it just feels not offensive, but just like someone should have just come at these guys and be like, hey man, I don't think this is a good idea. And I also don't want to condemn this decision drastically because I don't know how else you do this. Because if you're going to have the same actor play the same character in each timeline, exactly, it's it's hard to then go, okay, well, we have to get Asian actors for this storyline, even though that's also still the Jim Sturgis character because it just doesn't work as well. But on the other hand, there's no real answer to like, how do you fix this or what's the appropriate way to go about this? And I think they went about it politely, if somewhat, ignorantly and wrongly but i again like the same with the editing i don't know how you get across this if this is your intent and they also to their credit i think don't go and put anyone else in blackface they know that there's a line that they can't cross and they never even try to cross that they do the reverse where Halle Berry plays a white woman a couple times but that is not nearly the same thing in terms of offensiveness and like ignorance sure i mean and Beiduna, i hope i'm not mispronouncing her name who plays son me Four five one. She also plays Mexican woman. So is that like yeah. wrong too that she plays a Mexican woman and she plays a white person? Like I don't know. Again, when your content is so much about identity in the sense of like how that morphs over time and how like different properties of our soul or, or in our relatives or epigenetics, I think is kind of one of the things that I I thought was interesting when I was watching this movie as well. Kind of came in my mind. I know I'm saying I guess maybe I should say you get a pass, but I understand like your approach because the content is going to yes. be different throughout all those different time periods anyways right so i don't know it didn't rub me the wrong way but it rubbed some people the wrong way and i think that like you said it's something that we should probably talk about um having had alan moore rip up their work on v for vendetta to shreds the wachowskis vowed to never adapt another work of literature without the writer's blessing so mitchell lives in ireland shout out the dog so the trio goes to him they meet up in a pub in cork and they get the blessing they need over a couple cold pints which is just again Really cool. Wish I was there for that meeting. Would have been really cool to. I didn't get the invite to go to Cork, so kind of sad about yeah, that. They didn't know who you were, so they didn't. They didn't really care. <laughs> okay. Oh, well, thank you. Sorry, I'm just um, telling you. Fun... <laughs> no, I don't need you to. Though is the thing. I already knew that. Okay. Jeez. Um, but the financial gymnastics behind this movie are absolutely insane. Uh, much like their previous works, people were befuddled. They sent the script to every major studio after Warner Brothers declined right off the rip. They were just like, nah. They, and they had an option on it, too, you know. But they passed. Everyone passed. Cloud Atlas seemed too challenging, too complex. The Wachowskis reminded the Warner Brothers that the Matrix had been deemed too demanding and complex. But it had taken them nearly three years to get the green light, and they cashed it in on it. But the best studio, best the studio could offer was to keep open the possibility of buying the North American distribution rights, which is a little bit of payment and like would cover some of the budget, but not nearly enough. The projected budget for the movie was around $120 million at the time. Um, again, they're coming off of a string of Speed Racer, V for Vendetta, and you know, as much as I think nowadays we kind of look at the two, other two Matrix movies, we're like, yeah, you know, those are we're we're gonna gatekeep those. Not really yeah. the most successful run right there of just absolutely, you know, un unlimited budgets pretty much. So they're not really in the same bracket that they once were in the early to uh, mid-2000s. The only other guaranteed money coming in was from the German Federal Film Fund for Twikers end of the project. Uh, so the directors tried to drum up investment from other European sources, but they just kept getting hit roadblocks and hit with these reversals like – 
They realized that they wouldn't be able to raise the amount of money they needed in a normal way. So Grant Hill, who worked with them as a producer on you know the Matrix sequels and things like that, they started talking about distribution as equity in the project. So eventually, the production signed up a number of investors, including four from Asia, whose contributions totaled about $35 million. But this financing structure is obviously inherently unstable, you know, with so many different investors and so many different people pitching in, you know, each providing relatively small amounts, the entire project teeters on all of them being able to stay in. If they pull out, it's, it's, it's over. So they kind of rallied with James Schumas, who's the head of Focus Features at the time. He gives a presentation to a group of potential investors at the Cannes Film Festival with the duo in, in present as well. Uh, they get some money, but they realize it still wouldn't be enough. They finally, the Wachowskis decide to put their money own own money on the line to push Cloud Atlas over the finish line. Uh, like we've talked about, this film's structure and its complexity to even write, and actors playing multiple roles over the course of the film, they're a producer and AD's nightmare. You know, you add on the fact that there's six different storylines, but then you add on the fact you still have to schedule actors to be available for all six of them. Just absolutely crazy. Even if it's a small role where we just see Holly Berry in the Cavendish storyline chilling at the club that's still a day on set for her right or two days however long it yeah. takes to shoot that scene and they need her coverage so really shout out to the production crew on this and the ad's the unsung heroes of things like this you know you add on the financial jenga tower it took to make it it's a wonder it even got across the finish line let alone went 11 days over schedule that's it so uh i think lily has this really great quote that uh i kind of heard john jones say something similar when he was talking about possibly fighting francis and gano where he was like yeah the worst thing is that he could knock me out and once you become comfortable with that worst thing it's not so bad anymore so lily had a quote that kind of uh rang true to that and i so wish i could have this mentality uh when you have repetition of calamity the calamity begins to lose its emotional weight i really like that yeah. so that's something I want to take into my life, you know, good little grain of uh, knowledge right there. So filming begins in September 2011 at Studio Babelsberg in Germany. Other locations include the city of Dusseldorf, the Saxon Switzerland landscape, furthermore sets in and near Edinburgh in Glasgow, Scotland, and the Mediterranean island of Majorca, Spain. Uh, Glasgow doubles for both San Francisco and London. Boy, can you feel it when it's San Francisco. Yeah, it, that's not San Francisco, folks. That's just like... Come on. <laughs> that ain't no San Francisco. I've been to San Francisco and that ain't no San Francisco. I just like, I love Glasgow. Cool place, I'm sure. But, you know, that's nothing in common with the city of San Francisco in the slightest. It's all rolling hills, whereas Glasgow is just, you know, it's cold Scotland. Like, it's just an odd choice. But, you know, again, I think as silly as this is and how it doesn't really work, you got to make do with what they have in this limited budget and a limited scope of like, we're on our own basically yeah i mean not limited budget i mean this movie's budget was like i think like 146 million dollars right. which is crazy so um it's just the way that it was raised was independently and that's just a, a mm -hmm. odd structure for a film this large of scope but yeah i think the only thing that really doesn't play is the san francisco things you know it feels like cgi when they're showing the the establishing shot of outside san francisco and then the craziness that is that apartment is just yeah. I, I don't know if that's their vision of, of the 1970s, but I don't remember it. The way it's shot so wide, it just feels like a soundstage, you know, and the way the elevator is just positioned in the room is weird. Like, I don't know, like, why are people out in the hallway and there's like the doorway to the, it just, it's geographically, it's just an odd scene. So the San Francisco stuff doesn't work that great. The scene where the cars crash, it's clearly raining in one spot and not raining yeah. in the other, which is also funny. I, was... I found that very funny. Um, but oh, that scene looks cool though. Like the, that, that scene has some really cool stuff in it, the chase. 
But it's also like very obviously just like Halle Berry behind a car rig on a green screen set because they obviously weren't yeah. actually on the San Francisco roads. You know, like there's almost a charm to it of like, oh man, this is definitely not real. But yeah. I mean, hey, again, like do what you do what you got to do. Yep. So Twiker and the Wachowskis film parallel to each other. Let's just continue making this even more difficult. Um, so yeah. they're each using separate camera crews, although all three shoot scenes together when they're permitted to by the schedule. The Wachowskis mostly directed the 19th century story, which is Sturgis on a boat, and the two set in the future, which is soon me and Zachary and Marinim. Uh, while Twyker directed the story set in the 1930s, Forbisher and Sixsmith, in the 1970s, Louisa Ray, 2012, which is also Timothy Cavendish's storyline. Really, really difficult stuff. But I guess Twyker says the directors planned every segment of the film together in pre-production and confirmed to work closely together through per- post-production. So they all, like, this is their baby from... The, the first goal line to the end, you know, really respect the fact that they're all three involved. Like they didn't just have Twyker come in, help on the script and the structure. Be like, all right, you can go away now. You know, he shoots yeah. large parts of this film, which is weird how they want him to do San Francisco, but you know, whatever they, they got that future stuff unlocked. The Wachowski, that's their bad. They put the German guy on San Francisco and then the Americans are like, we'll do South Korea future stuff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I gotta, the film was meant to be shot in chronological order. However, Barry broke her foot two days before the shooting was to, supposed to start. Uh, so instead of replacing her, the Wachowskis and Twiker heavily changed the initial filming schedule. Also, films don't shoot chronological. We've talked about Nicholas Winding Refn, uh, director of Drive. Go listen to that episode. It's just rare a director gets to shoot films chronologically. It's just extremely difficult to do. It makes make shooting and production that much longer. So uh, <laughs> crazy, crazy concept. Barry stated that it involved traveling back and forth to Majorca and then Germany. Then we had to get back to Majorca when my foot got a little bit better and we were able to shoot some of that stuff on the mountainside when I could climb a little bit better. It was all over the place. So we've talked about other movies where actors are just off the board for a while. It's crazy that they were able to get, you know, Tom Hanks, Holly Berry, Hugh Grant to all do this film in their, I would say, later years. You know, they're kind of not past their prime. I think they're all still really relevant and, and actors were excited to see do good work, but their choices and some of the things they're doing at this point in their career kind of leave you maybe wanting a little bit more. So for her to stay committed on this project when she probably very easily could have, I think I read somewhere they could have collected insurance on the production a couple million dollars before it even started and just tanked it. But they're like, no, we're going to keep her going. Like she's part of the film. She's part of the cast. Yeah. Again, speaks to that kind of family concept that the uh, Wachowskis bring to their projects. I mean, it's, I would say this is probably we'll get into this more with like each individual actor as we transition to the acting segment of the episode, but like this is probably the tail end of all their commercial primes before they're kind of limited or regulated to supporting or like the movies about their age you know? <laughs> in a really weird way or they're doing biopics. I mean, look at where Hanks goes in the late twenty tens of of Captain Phillips and Sully because he's like, oh, man, I need good stories about old white men. Oh, yes, autobiography movies. Let's just do those because that's the only way it really goes with them because he's not going to get another chance to be a semi-action star the way he does in Cloud Atlas. Yeah, I think this is uh, this is another thing I kind of wanted to ask you. I had it here in my notes. It's like, is this the most physical Tom Cruise has ever been? Like, he wakes up in that scene. He's kind of still, like, he's pretty ripped in that scene or at least toned. You know, like, he's running in this movie. He's getting in fights. Like, I don't know. Outside of Saving Private Ryan, I really haven't seen him do this much as far as, like, using his physicality. Because he's not obviously a large man, but, you know, I think he, he pulls it off pretty well. I mean, so Hanks is, is what? He's got to be, like, six. He's six feet. 
So he's not like a small guy. He's never done a real action action movie unless you want to be like Turner and Hooch, bro. So I I right. guess I guess so. Like he doesn't ever go for that sort of thing. He's much more just like America's wholesome dad. So I I think so. But he's kind of Forrest Gump a little bit has some action stuff, but he's not like I know what you mean though. He's not doing a lot of like choreographed fights in that movie either. He's just running, you know. He's not he's not getting prone with a knife getting ready to like get into an actual combat fight or like slitting someone's throat in a lot of exactly. these movies, right? Like it's really kind of much more physical. It's also a complete scumbag in some of these storylines, something that he also hasn't done. I know that people be like, well, look at Road to Perdition. That's a completely different internal performance of like a man who's who's torn and, and knows he's going to hell. That's the whole point of the movie, a la the title Road to Perdition. So I don't necessarily buy into that all the way. It's a completely different kind of thing where he is just completely a piece of garbage in that Felix fucking Finch storyline. So I think right now is a perfect time to just talk about casting since we're getting into it. Yeah, let's do it. Um, let's do it. Tom Hanks has stated that Cloud Atlas completely changed his worldview. Uh, he said, I've seen it three times and discovered, I swear to God, different profound things with each viewing. In 2017, he called it a movie that altered my entire consciousness. It's the only movie I've been in that I've seen more than twice. I, th- I think he's quite good in this movie. C- call me crazy. You know, maybe it's... Uh, it's it's precursor CTP in the sense that there is a lot of prosthetics going on, a lot of wild choices, yeah. but that's not his decision. Um, and I think even when it, when it isn't his decision, he's totally down for it in this movie, and it feels like he's having way more fun with it. Uh, like we said, it's probably one of his most physical roles as far as like what he's doing with Zachary's character. I think it's the only time that you can really say he's playing just a straight-out bastard until Elvis. And it's like, again, probably one of the more interesting things he's done in the past 20 years. So we lampoon him a lot on the show. Sometimes I'm not always a huge fan of how the ctp award goes to people and, and how we how we talk about acting it's an extremely difficult thing that like i think we just look at people especially maybe in the echelon of like a hugh grant and Kylie berry and a tom hanks is just being like really really high stars so it's like what what else do they have to do it's really not that hard it's extremely difficult especially when the content is this abstract and different to buy into and i think cruz or cruz geez i think hanks does a great job of like really selling it in this movie and i don't feel like he's really mailing any of the characters in that he portrays yeah i i would actually agree that i think tom hanks is pretty good in this movie and like the roles that he's given a lot of time in i think he does pretty well with all of them and I would say, as much as we've lampooned Hanks and like we have a whole segment about how silly his Elvis voice is, he is one of the best actors of the last thirty years. Like, pretty, pretty unquestionably. Odd. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Like, like is he as high in the peak of like uh, a Daniel Day Lewis or like even sometimes a Russell Crowe? No, but like he's just in that tier below of like one of the best stalwarts of, of film history in the last thirty years of American history. Um, and I think he's really good in this movie. And we'll get into like the other characters and how weird they get and whether that's intentional or it is. Um, he's really good when he's going into the type, which is what he major like majorly plays for the most part in a real subtle, honest manner. You know, I really love him in his small performance of the 1970s storyline when he's just talking with Halle Berry on that balcony and they're smoking a joint and they're just talking. It's just a really well developed character in that narration afterwards as he's talking about on the plane of like you know, my whole life is kind of leading to this and like, it's all changing now. And I love this woman, even though I just met her, I genuinely buy that. He does a really good job building connection and chemistry with her. 
I, I couldn't agree with you more. And they maybe have five minutes of screen time together, maybe less. Yeah. And it's a really good point where the script uses a L cut and like interweaves the the past storyline that he's in, where he's kind of a bastard. I mean, like we talked about pre-show, like Holly Berry and Tom Hicks smoking a joint. Like who knew I needed to hop into the middle of that rotation? Yeah. You know, I never thought I was going to get that. But like he really fucking sells it really well there. I do buy it, a dramatic performance out of him a lot. You know, it's weird to him be, hear him be like, you believe that shit? But like, I really liked it. You know, I was like, this is awesome. I'm, I'm down for this. And then I think he's really good as Zachary, which is again playing kind of into the type, but a little differently, where he's playing a loser, shameless, like failure, but he's doing it really believably and he's not going so far off the board that I'm like, oh man, what is he doing? It just feels like that's a natural character to play. And then when he becomes the hero moment, it all makes sense and he all does it really well. Um, that said, we have to talk about the weirder parts of the movie. Talk about that true, true. That true, true, and that that other stuff, and he handles that dialogue pretty well. I have to give him credit before we transition. For here. how stupid and uh, absurd it is, I totally agree. Yes. I think he does a really good job with some dumbass dialogue, and not yes. to like, not to like, you know, be a jerk about it, but it's just it's reminiscent of some language used in the antebellum self by slaves and stuff like that that I found kind of like. Eh probably didn't need to lean that far into it you know it is unique enough yeah. that it's not exactly that and i think enslavement is a is a concept throughout the film and the wachowski's filmography whether it be you know dating back to the matrix you know even there's a direct thing in this movie where people are being used as protein which is exactly what is happening in the matrix as well that's what the, the robots yeah. are using so there is that kind of thing, but it's just, it, it is a little weird. It's jarring when you're first introduced to the 2134 line, but like, I agree with you. He really handles it well with Grace. It's just like, this is the saged actor that everyone talks about. And he was like the dad of the set, you know, like he would bring Holly Berry soup and like help bring her around the set when she had her broken foot and stuff. Like he, he called the Wachowski's mom and dad and stuff. So they really kind of like had that family bond with him too. So you really see the sage and like the guy who's really been able to act and be relevant in this industry for 30 plus years in this movie, who's like also not afraid to do weird box office challenging things like as much yes. as we again think ctp is a weird performance he's doing something weird in a big hollywood blockbuster movie i mean a plus guy a plus guy and the dermot higgins thing and the hotel worker and the colonial like evil nurse thing those would oftentimes come across as like a ctp thing for me where i'm just like what is he doing and i think he's really bad when he plays against type and he tries to be like cartoonishly evil in a movie that is otherwise pretty self-serious that's why the elvis performance is so weird to me and why we've made it the whole thing of the show of like everyone in that movie's playing that completely straight austin butler's completely locked in and then you have tom hanks in a cartoon like villain character whereas in this movie when he's playing the cartoon villain he's in a setting where that makes actual sense and that's the intent and tone of the storyline like in a in the the Ewing storyline, it's an adventurous like colonial romp. That's the whole tone. It's very Pirates of the Caribbean. It's not meant totally. to be taken like uber seriously. So he's like, "Oh, here's your medicine, Adam." <laughs> it's like, okay, I see what he's going for. I don't like it, and it's just kind of weird that like that's Tom Hanks, but like I know what he's going for. The Dermot Higgins thing. Tom Twyker and the Wachowskis are not dumb enough. They don't just be like, "Hey." We need a Scottish guy. You know, logically, we couldn't cash just Jim Sturgis. He has nothing else going on that plot line. But them choosing Tom Hanks is a choice on their part to play into the comedy of that specific tone and genre of the storyline. And it works. 
Yes, exactly. Like, it's crazy to look at. And it's like, what is he wearing? What is he looking like? Like, he's got like these. He looks fucking Finch. <laughs> he's got these, like, sideburns, but a shaved head and diamond earrings and a necklace. And he's just like a cockney gangster. But that's exactly what they want to look like. The whole point of that character is it's Tom Hanks and that silly little voice. Like, that's the whole thing. So, in that regard, it all works, and that's why I don't have a giant issue with this Hanks performance, because like that's the intent, and when it's the intent, it makes sense. Whereas I feel the Elvis thing, I don't think the intent was Ricardo Tom Parker to be a giant cartoon villain, you know. So I think kudos to Hanks for like actually trying, because in the other rest of the 2010s, as we briefly touched on, it's it's this is the rest of it after Cloud Atlas, Captain Phillips biopic, Saving Mr. Banks. He's nominated for an Academy Award for that. Best I don't mean it negatively. I just mean he's yeah, doing kind of safer, more like common roles, you know, like he's One not going off the wall. Yeah, yeah. Bridge of Spies, really good, but another kind of like traditional movie. Sully, The Circle, The Post, Toy Story 4, A Beautiful Gray Day in the Neighborhood, Greyhound, all very simple, like more toned down stories. Whereas like his choice to be in this movie, I give him a lot of credit for because a lot of big name actors probably wouldn't want to try this challenge of playing six different characters in a story that is so weird and like divergent in tone and like, you know, intention. And kind of like you said, like everything is a choice. Tom Hanks is a, isn't the first choice that you would think to maybe play some of those parts. So like, I think that's another really cool thing is like they got him at a stage in his career where he's a little bit older and I think it really, it benefits instead of it being kind of a detractor. So I really enjoy it. Holly Berry's the next person I think we got to talk about. Holly Berry stated in an interview, it would be impossible to explain what I really feel or think about the film. It exists on so many different levels. I love the totality of all the characters. I think this is the most interesting she's been uh, out of the whole entire cast, you know, I think Captain Phil is a pretty fun performance. I'm not trying to lampoon anybody here. As as we know, I think, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit more <laughs> like a, a keep distance from like lampooning people. But like she hasn't made a good movie like for a while until we get to Cloud Atlas, in my opinion, and really hasn't done much with her immense talent since, in my opinion. Um but I think she's really interesting in this movie. Out of all the people, she's the one, like, I kind of enjoy the Easter egg of all the different things. Like, I talked about she's the weird doctor. You know, she only, like, briefly comes up in, like, the Cavendish storyline. But they use her beauty really well where it's like, oh, wow, like, that's the prettiest woman in the room. And the camera just kind of drifts over to her. And, like, you feel that connection. She plays that really well without having a word of dialogue. I love the Louisa Ray storyline. I think it's probably the most, like, pulpy and kind of, like the one that we can probably relate to the most as like modern moviegoers. I think hers is really fun. Um, but again, like I just don't really think like anybody in this kind of cast is really doing these same interesting things that they're doing in this movie. No, I mean, Halle Berry's career post cloud Atlas it's, it's cameos and X-Men as storm where I think she's always been really good at storm, but then it's yes. just a lot of like the movie kidnap She's really good in John Wick 3 in like a small role. She's really fun in Kingsman in a small role, but then it's like Moonfall. <laughs> like she hasn't really worked a lot. I think she's maybe done, I'm looking at maybe 10 movies in like 10 years, if that. So she hasn't done a lot of work, and the, some of the work she has done just isn't as interesting as this. But like this movie is a really good reminder of like, yeah, Halle Berry's awesome when like you give her a good role in something to do that's not just, yeah. you know angry mom trying to find a kid in like what's supposed to be an action movie 
Yeah, I, to- I totally agree. And, like, I think she's cool in the John Wick movies. I do think she's a little miscast. Like, I think that's just a weird part in the movie, personally, to me. I remember seeing that in the movie theater and being like, oh, Halle Berry's in this? Like, I just... Not what I was expecting, but cool. Like, I think she's, she's awesome. And, like, she handles the physicality. She has the two dogs in that movie, which is fucking sick. But, like, yeah, it just, like, kind of comes out of nowhere, and she kind of leaves the movie, you know, out of nowhere again. So, yeah, I just think, like, the, this is, like, something, like you said, she could really bite down onto and, like, talk about the physicality. I mean, she broke her foot, like, right as the film is starting. It's still, like, she's like, no, I want to do this. Like, I'm... Right. I'm intrinsically involved in this. So I think uh is there any other like performances like that you want to shout out and talk about? I mean, I think the the Wachowskis do a great job of doing their Hugo weaving thing of like silent deadly killer. They really know how to do yeah. <laughs> do that really well with him for the most part in, besides the Ewing storyline where he uh, plays a father-in-law. I think he's really good in this. Um the other performance I really want to talk about real quick very briefly is just like Ben Wishaw. Ben Wishaw's so good in this movie as Robert Forbisher. Yes. I could have taken 20 more minutes of him just like narrating his life. <laughs> like Ben Wishaw's so we, good. We know. Movies. We know you could have. <laughs> I know. I love I love hearing people talk, Nick. I'm sorry I go to the movies and I like hearing people talk, god damn it. I'm just saying <laughs> Ben Wishaw's really great, a really underutilized actor in Hollywood today. And it's really nice to go to this movie and be like, oh, they just let him cook for a whole storyline. The, the that's one of the notes I had on here is like I really love the relationship between him and Forbisher and Sixsmith the way they let that like kind of develop and he like seems like kind of a debonair asshole but he also kind of has that nice little line where he's like I needed something to remember you by and I think that's really beautiful yeah. um, the Wachowskis also really like kind of let his storyline fall into that like maddened genius of adaptation which is I feel kind of self-reflective of the movie it must have been like some of the frustrations they felt with you know probably V for Vendetta and the fallout with Alan Moore or you know just adapting such and something Things such as like Cloud Atlas, so large and complex. So I think that's a really great storyline. I think all of them are pretty good. Some of them are great. Some of them are not so good. That's kind of where I fall. So you get the whole spectrum with those. But I think, again, like if unless you got something else, I think we should probably talk about the dog, Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant, kind of known for being difficult to work with from things that I've read and, and seen, uh, kind of known for being a little bit biting. I, I, can't tell you I haven't worked with him. He wasn't on the set for V for Vendetta uh, when I was playing guard number eight, so I'm not quite sure. Um, but he spoke of Cloud Atlas highly as well. He said, I thought Cloud Atlas was amazing. The Wachowskis are the bravest filmmakers in the world, and I think it's an amazing film. It's frustrating to me. Every time I've done something outside the genre of light comedy, the film fails to find an audience at the box office, and sadly, Cloud Atlas never really found the audience it deserved. Hugh Grant, amazing in this movie. Really going against cast, like he talked about. He's usually the light comedy guy. Uh, he's a complete asshole in every single one of these storylines. Yeah. I really like him as the Kona killer, where he's just like, they have that Lord of the Rings scene where he hops off the horse and he's sniffing. Like, he's doing a really good job. He looks menacing in that makeup and like with the braided hair and stuff. Um, love him as the nurse. I think that's hilarious. <laughs> really funny. Um, and keeping him as Denholm. Is really cool too when he's got the mask on. That's the only time where his makeup lets him down a little bit, but his performance is absolutely hilarious. So he's like, watch you, he got fuck off then. You know, he's just got that great kind of shitty <laughs> accent to him. You know, he's awesome. You know, so I really like him in this. I think it's cool to see him play somebody who's evil. I think he does it quite well. And uh, I think, again, just somebody who hasn't been interesting in their film roles for a long time. Hey, he's going to play an Oompa Loompa in Wonka, all right? In December, big movie for him. He might go for the gold in the Oscar. Big but... movie for me, babe. Big movie for I you. I took Wonka, baby. Come on now. I'm rolling with movie it. Draft I'm rolling on Wonka. With it. I'm rolling with it, baby. Come on, Elemental. Keep pushing the ball down the field. Let's go. Come on. 
It's like one theater. You just keep buying tickets to it there every single day. You're like, keep going. There's always sold out at Elemental. The 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 Hugh Grant of it all is like really funny because every other actor could play like a variation of like a good person, a bad person, an okay person, a goofball. Yeah. And like Hugh Grant's just the fucking worst asshole you've ever met in your life. It's him and Hugo leaving. They're just like, just the worst person. And like, they have no like character evolution or like attempt at like becoming better. They're just like, I just wants to keep nukes going on or he's he eating people and then killing them. Or he's just rude to his brother. It's just really funny. They're like, ah, Hugh Grant, just the worst. Yeah. Also, what's hilarious to me is like the Wachowskis must have known, like obviously going into this, like, hey, Hugh can be kind of a uh, kind of tough. Yeah. They're just like, dude, you get the deal. Like, there ain't no change for you. You're staying the way you are. You're stuck in your way. So we're just gonna make you an asshole throughout. Don't worry about it. Just come to set and do your Hugh Grant thing. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, but rolling on the box office, uh, I think we need to hit the numbers. But let's talk about some things and set the scene first. Cloud Atlas at the time is the most expensive independent film ever made. So that alone had it buzzing, like Josh has talked about, you know, may not have been like, oh, hey, we got to go see, you know, Cloud Atlas, but it, it, it had pull, you know, and the cast was obviously people that we're all familiar with. So you add in the anonymity of the Wachowskis, they bring that to every project. The fact they were kind of tackling something so dense and narratively complex, Cloud Atlas is anticipated in kind of a cynical way by critics in the film world, almost like hopefully it's good because if it's not, we told you so. Um, for context, I was listening to some old Smodcasts a few weeks before this pick, and Kevin, Kevin Smith mentions that he was sent a screener of Cloud Atlas during Oscar season, and him and Scott Moser talk about it pretty glowingly for about 25 minutes on that podcast. But everybody else was kind of right. <laughs> Financially, Cloud Atlas makes $130 million against its $146 million budget. Critically, completely polarizes. I think a word that we use in this podcast a lot, almost too many times, is divisive. But man, if there was a film in a week to use it, it's this one. It has the rare honor of being on many top 10 best and worst of the year list. 2012, pretty solid year for movies. But people debated its length and editing of the interwoven stories, but praised other aspects such as its cinematography. The score, which we haven't mentioned, is absolutely beautiful. Uh, visual style, ensemble cast, and ambition. Why why didn't this movie land like ever? I, I'm curious, like, do you think this is a movie, even if you just keep it exactly as is, you could just plop it in any single year since 2012 and it would actually work for audiences? I think you bring up a really good point in your question here about like, is this movie just polarizing all of the time? And I think the answer is yes. I, I think this is just a movie that is pure heart of the creatives that really wanted to make it. And they didn't really, you know, they didn't have to make any sacrifices. It's extremely expensive, independent production. I think there's another movie now. I, I can't remember the title of it. I think it's kind of like more like a action superhero kind of thing that is more expensive in the independent film world. But like th this movie really didn't, for all of the budgeting, you know, of $146 million, it really wasn't on, it was a blip on the radar. It kind of came and went, which was something we do all the time on the show. We kind of lament of like, hey, this movie came out and, you know, while it has its flaws, you know, I would be cool with getting programmed another two of these a year. You know, I wouldn't have a problem with that or, or whatever it may be. So I think it really falls into that category where I was talking earlier, where like if this isn't coming out in 2012 and we just have a couple more years of the miniseries and like to be to be honest with people too, like before Netflix and HBO Max and all that stuff, which is, you know, has now transitioned to almost everything as a miniseries, the, the miniseries was dead. You know, it's yeah. not until House of Cards 
comes on Netflix with David Fincher that that idea is kind of brought back again or like, you know, episodic drama television really kind of got a boost from that again. So I think if this is maybe again like an eight-part miniseries where, hey, maybe it unfolds chronologically like you said where over the first two episodes were kind of going in order and then there's this great tease or this great cliffhanger of like, oh, wow, there's something going on with that birthmark or, you know, it's weird how that you know, symbol of Sun Mi translates to the Hawaii storyline. Whatever it may be, you can kind of maybe parcel out that information in different dramatic ways. I think there's just a rush to get it done and to combine it into a 172-minute film is a is a work of art and it's quite a feat. I don't think that it nails it every single time. You know, I think we talked about the Ewing storyline bogs down a lot. I think the other storyline that I find a little bit I, I rub up against is, is you said the Neo Soul one. I think some of the stuff going on there is really kind of obviously weird and, and rub people the wrong way also it's not the strongest storyline but it is so integral to the plot of the film and it looks really cool is the other thing is like I, we don't get cgi that looks that good anymore now i really don't think anybody oh. gives a shit <laughs> so i think this movie is kind of undersung in the technical achievements that it gets more so than like hey this is a great story it's quite earnest i think the subtext is really on the sleeve it's it's a problem that I have with the Wachowskis is I do think their writing is very on the nose at times. Um, but yeah, I think as a work of art, we got to admire it for its ambition. I think this would be way better as a TV show. Uh, the more I thought about it, and as much as I hate just being the guy that's like, TV's better than movies. I hate stuff. that. Yes. I hate that yeah. poll. Like, I never want to be that guy on the show to be like, this would be better as a miniseries. But like, sometimes it really is that it really is the case. Like, I just think this this movie gets way more attention and like people giving it a real earnest shot if it is that way where you can go say, hey, I'm going to skip the Timothy Cavendish episodes because like for whatever reason, not that I would, but I can understand why people look at that. And I think it's probably the least important storyline in the whole movie. It's not really have anything to do with the others. I don't find that it furthers the plot or themes dramatically to me. And as much as I like it for its slapsticky comedy, do you find it to be like absolutely crucial to the meaning of the movie? It's content that it produces, which is another we can just bleed right into it, which is perfect. It's concept of recollection of history, though, how we pass down from generation to generation information is key. And that scene has one where they do a biopic of <laughs> Timothy Cavendish's life and Tom Hanks is reading the line of I will not be subjected to criminal abuse. Well, that line is then repeated by Sun Mi when she and her other friend are watching it on a loop in, you know, the Neo Soul future storyline. So it plays a big part in the sense that it is how we recollect his recollect history and pass things down. You know, whether it be the sextet or Adam Ewing's diary or, you know, the the document that um, Louis Ray is trying to get about the San Francisco nuclear power facility. Like all of the film's thing is about kind of how we pass history down, whether it's orally through word of mouth or through the documents we use. You know, it can be simple as Tom Hanks sitting around a campfire telling kids the story. You know, it's, it's, so I think it is a big part of the actual overall theme of the film. Right. I guess when you put it like that, it's a good point. I just, I just think it's the least consequential over all of them probably that of the ewing storyline and i think that if you were to remake this movie today i think there are some of those that you consider being like okay how do we tweak these or shorten them to make it so it all works in a little short of a movie because that is it's part of the movies i i don't want to say problem but it's part of the reason why it didn't make all that much money is it's hard to say to people 
around Halloween season, no less. Hey, let's go watch a three-hour movie about genre blending and time and space and reincarnation because it's a hard sell to just make anyone go see a three-hour movie nowadays unless it's Oppenheimer or like Avengers or like there has to be a big name attached to it that the, like the general public truly cares about. And I just don't think that's the case with Cloud Atlas. So I think if it's a TV show, there's just far more like attention span being given to it because it's not as long. You can come in and come out when you want, whereas the movie, it's like this three-hour I say this in a good word, dump of like all this information and content that is really hard for a lot of mainstream viewers to kind of keep up with. Yeah. And that's another point is like, there are action scenes in this movie and they're staged really well and it, it looks dope, but like, this is not a Wachowski's action flick. You know, this is really a lot of people talking in rooms or discovering facts or whatever it may be, trying to come up with a piece of music. It really isn't about the action set pieces as much to me. I don't know. Would you disagree, Josh? No, I think there's probably only one action set piece. Really, it's the Soon Me fight with Neo Soul. I think maybe you could argue the Cavendish. Every every okay, every storm has an action set piece, but they're really not that like dramatic. It's the Keith David Hugo weaving fight with Luisa Ray. It's the the slave on the ship doing all the stuff. That's a cool scene. That's a nice set piece, but it's not it is cool. that crazy or elaborate. It, but so it's far less the action movie that I think it would probably sell itself as in a trailer and far more like just six different stories and six different genres about just people than it is about one central fight or force. Yeah. I, I think that's kind of one of the strongest points of the film is that it's really not caught up in some of those same things or some of the tropes that maybe people had kind of put them into at some point. Um, we talked about this other thing that I kind of want to address earlier, but I just think, the the critique of the edit thing is kind of sometimes lazy as far as like actual critics of films you know it's just like it's such an easy thing to glom onto when the film already has six storylines to be like that one i want that critique it's just like i don't know i think there's other things that you could look at in this movie that are, are worse than that but uh you know i could point out a bunch of cool edits i got in here i got a little little section here called nick's nice edits if you want me to josh <laughs> might as well while we're while we're talking about it uh, yeah, you know, there's that really close up of the soapbox that uh, the other person takes from the machine. We dolly on it, dolly on it, and then we rack focus on Soon Me while she's sitting in her bunk. Really cool stuff right there. Um, I love the dissolved, dissolve of Old Sixsmith while Forbisher's like looking through the room for Ewing's uh, other part of the book. It like dissolves slowly until the point that they're both in the same room. Really cool stuff. Uh, also ties the two stories together. The Lord of the Rings bridge S scene, like I talked about with the Kona cannibal played by Hugh Grant. Great uh, reaction shots, great editing. I know where I'm at the whole entire time. The knock at the door brings us back uh, to what's the other one? Oh, oh no, Nick. Uh, Forbisher. Forbisher. It brings us back to Forbisher when he knocks at the door. I brought it together, which is a really early one that's well done. Um, The Doctor. Hold on. Nope. Nope. Can't read my own handwriting on that one. So that's all I got. But you know what I'm saying? Nick's nice edits. Come check me out. (laughs) I hope every week we do it, Nick's nice edits. And it always ends. He'd be like, oh, no. Hold on. Oh, ah, can't read my own handwriting. Let's just move on. Let's just move to the next conversation point. I think I need to start typing my notes is the lesson learned here. I did have one question for you who can't see that. Did the back of your page say that a parted and like really like chicken scratch writing? Is that what that said? Yeah, I'm doing a cam tech exercise okay. for my class. Oh, okay. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah, I'm doing the departed scene. I was so, really uh, confused. I was like, why did his Cloud Atlas notes just have the departed written on it in big block letters? I can't wait to see you explain this to a Suffolk County jury, you fucking <laughs> This is going to be fun. <laughs> I I guess I, I think the editing, to get back on track, we talked about it a lot, so I don't want to say more about it, but I think it's very easy for people to pick this apart if they don't pay attention to this movie. And if they like zone out for 10 to 15 minutes combined, you lose out on a lot of different stuff. And that's the other challenge of this movie is that it asks your full attention span the whole way through without any like really like shortcuts or like breaks to be like, all right, well, like you could zone out here. I think maybe like the last, at the right before the last 30 minutes, you maybe could because that's when everything's kind of building, but not quite there. But for the most part, the editing is essential because it tells you where we're going and what's integral to the storyline. So if you try and be a lazy viewer, you're going to get punished for it. Yeah. And like, Hey, guess what? Good films require work. They require effort. Just like yeah. any good piece of literature or art that you interact with or music, like it, it, it requires your attention. So like, if you don't want to give it to it, then don't. But like, if that's your main gripe for a movie, that's already like doing so many different things with time and identity and the world and, and changing perspectives, like then this movie isn't for you. And like you said, that's probably just the case of why it wouldn't make money at any different time that it was released possibly. So who knows? Um, one last thing I kind of want to talk about as we're getting to the end of the show is that you made a comment earlier, I think, in the research about how the Wachowski respond to how uncynical this movie is. And as much as I had my gripes with this movie, that is my favorite part of it, is that there are a ton of great quotes in this movie that I think this movie kind of overuses sometimes, to your point about how ham-handed it is and how it knows kind of <laughs> – it wants you to know what this movie's about in a really serious way. But there's just beautiful statements about humanity in this movie that I really appreciate. Like your version of the truth, the only one that matters is really important to me about the whole central point of the movie is about like, hey, whoever you are, your version is the thing that matters. But more importantly, like the world spins from the same unseen forces that twist our hearts. Just a baller line. That's a baller line. Yes. I so, like I don't line. care who you are. If you don't like that movie, that's just a cool ass line. Or he believed love can outlive death is probably the most important thing in this movie that really stood out to me is that, you know, so many things we grapple with as a human race is like existentialism and we're all going to die and all that sort of stuff. And instead of this movie just being like, yeah, we all are going to die, buddy. It takes this really refreshing look of like, yeah, but even when you're dead, your love for people is still going to be there and their love for you is still going to be there. And I found that just like really nice and wholesome. That soon me line where she's talking with, I don't know if it's supposed to be like an android person or like uh, what is Darcy playing in that scene? Do you, like, what is that? That's the archivist. Okay. So she's talking to the it's archivist. The okay. Okay. And she's saying some of the things about like, yeah, I love uh, the Jim Sturgis character in that section. He's like, love, like he's dead. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. Like how could you love him if he's dead? Yeah. And, and the way she talks about it, you can see that it actually affects this cold calculating guy who's never thought about it and is like, Oh my God. Yeah. Maybe she is right. Maybe there is something in love. And that moment feels like such a shot into like the consciousness of like edge Lord snarkism, which is what so much of the internet and pop culture has become where it's like, Ooh, I want evil Superman now. And it's like, yeah, but there's a real value in just showing someone like, Hey, love matters. Being a good person matters. And like carrying good ideals with you is important to like having a good life. And it doesn't always and have people to can be change. Yeah, and, and as much as it doesn't always make sense in the movie where, like, 
Tom Hanks's last appearance before the <laughs> the like way he changes the Zachary's like Dermot Higgins. It's like, how was the soul change from Dermot Higgins? Um, but that idea is paramount to the human experience. And so the Wachowskis and Tom Twyker genuinely making a movie about these themes is just super refreshing continuously. I, I concur, my friend. I think again, I'm I think you like this movie more than like as we've talked about it. It seems like you've you've like it a little bit more. I don't necessarily think you have to go back and rewatch it, but rewatch bits of it and I think you'll get a little bit more out of it. Up to you. But I really enjoy this film. Um and we hope you enjoyed this podcast because I think we're just about done. Yeah, I mean, CTP, I, I, it's Hanks. We're just going to give to him blanketed, and that's all we're going to say. You know, it, it goes to the originator, folks. That's all I can say. Yeah, that's fair enough. Folks, hope you had a great holiday season. Like, rate, subscribe. Check out that Instagram, road underscore dogs underscore podcast. Road dogs out.